Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I have lived a very good life. It has been very rich and full. I've been very fortunate and I'm thrilled by it when I look back. That was the quote of an Australian, ex-Gallipoli soldier and survivor, Albert Facey. I thought of his words after having the privilege to hear from our guest today as she described her fortunate life and how her story emphasises and brings to life the great bond and relationships between Australia and New Zealand, which whilst forged over 100 years ago in adversity, is as strong now as it was then. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner with Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory Firm. In this episode with Kate McKenzie, Chief Executive Officer of Chorus, we dialed New Zealand and learn how the land of the long white cloud will have 87% of the population with fibre to the premise by 2022. How the vision of keeping New Zealand new has encouraged the climate of innovation and digitisation and how being small can be a great advantage. While serendipity has played its part, Kate has had a most interesting career. Kate's previous roles include Chief Operating Officer of Telstra, Australia's largest telecommunications company, CEO in the New South Wales Government of Commerce, Industrial Relations and the Work Cover Authority, as well as working in the Cabinet Office on the development and implementation of competition policy, energy policy, privatisation, and a range of complex Commonwealth and state negotiations. Kate currently serves on the board of Alliance. As CEO, Kate shares her thoughts on the importance of the personal character traits of optimism, curiosity, and courage, and what it can bring, as well as her concern for young women lacking confidence and how critical this is highlighted from her personal trials and tribulations. She provides insights from a guest lens to the thinking in New Zealand, contrasts with her experience of Australia, and the opportunities afforded through technology to all. So sit back and enjoy this wide-ranging and highly engaging discussion. It's a marathon, not a sprint, with Kate McKenzie. Welcome to the show today, Kate. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Kate, I've uh, looked at your history. You've had a remarkable career, commencing in law, public service, telecoms, and now CEO of a major telecom provider. Do you mind sort of talking us through how did this journey begin and did you have any formal plan? I do often get asked that question and I will say I am not one of these people who had their plan from the time they were sort of 20 for how their life was going to play out. Quite to the contrary, I've always been um, the sort of person who follows my interests. I do have a passion for fixing problems. 
I do, maybe partly as a result of my upbringing, have a big focus on purpose and a desire to sort of try to work in environments where I feel like I can make a difference. And, you know, that's been a pretty big guiding force for most of my career decisions over the course of my career. What was the decision behind law to start with? My father said to me, whatever you do, there's two things I don't want you to do, be a journalist or be a lawyer. So I had to pick one of them. (laughs) It could have been worse. You could have said a headhunter, so I'm glad you decided to go down that path. But I guess it (laughs) it gives you um, a great opportunity to see how the real world works and I guess and understand people. Okay, that's that's one insight you get from law. Well, look, I think I think like all of these things, you know, I didn't have a burning. I knew I always wanted to be an X or a Y. Mm-hmm. So I think, as you say, something like law, which I think teaches you a lot about, you know, gives you a framework for problem solving, gives you a lot of exposure to the things that have caused grief between people over time. Um, lots of skills that I still use now, even though I haven't been a practicing lawyer for quite some time around the way you approach problem solving and the way you sort of approach life as a leader in a in a corporate environment. So, you know, I would always say having a law degree is a really useful thing to have, even if you don't spend your whole career practicing law. What was the uh, the driver behind the move out of law, Kate, into the public servants? You know, you held high responsibility and you've also not only held high responsibility in public service, but you've also made the transition into the corporate, which I think is a very interesting thing to explore. And again, I would just say I kind of followed opportunities that I thought were interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having a really strong, very talented public service is really, really important, just like the rest of the economy. The nature of what people are now being asked to do in those roles is so different to the way things were done 20 or 30 years ago. You actually want to have people who are adaptable, who are good leaders, who can think to the future, you know, who understand the impacts of things like the digital economy on traditional public policy settings. And if I were to say what was my interest back then, mm. it was mainly you know, I got drawn in by interesting problems to solve, whether that was figuring out what we're going to do with water resources. I would say with hindsight, there's still quite a bit of work to do there. I got involved in things like the electricity market, lots of big, hairy problems where you feel like you can make a difference. And that's a very satisfying way to spend your life. Can you sort of talk us through where do you see the real differences between the problem solving of corporate and government? In some ways, I would say they're converging. I would say historically, in some ways, the problems in a corporate world are less multidimensional in the sense that, you know, at least historically, it's been mostly about the bottom line, although I think that's definitely changing in the wake of banking royal commissions and increasing demand that corporates operate within their social license to operate and care a bit more about the impacts of what they do beyond financial bottom lines. Whereas in a public sector environment, more often than not, the financial bottom line is only sort of one and not even necessarily the most important sort of consideration when you're trying to decide what to do around an issue that the government's grappling with. So, you know, I think you have to make in some ways more difficult trade-offs that are what people value and what the general population is going to regard as acceptable as opposed to... I'm going to make a dollar out of this. And Kate, was there ever an aspiration to potentially move into politics yourself? People have often asked me that over the years, but um, I guess I decided quite early on that that probably wasn't for me. I mean, I've never been a person who really relishes a high public profile. I like to much happier just getting things done behind the scenes. So that's probably reason number one. 
I actually think it's very, very challenging. I mean, these days, if you take on a role like that, with the advent of social media, you have no private life anymore, pretty much. So it's not just your decision, it's the impact on the rest of the family. I think often we don't appreciate what a high toll that takes. And during your observations and your work with, I guess, some very interesting people in politics, what were your learnings in the sense of what you could apply uh, to your next step into the world of telecoms? Oh, look, I think in all walks of life and in various sectors of the economy, you find good people and you find not so good people. And I guess I learned over the course of my career you want to try and make choices to work with the good people that you can learn something from. And, you know, whether that's politics or whether that's working in a corporate environment, it's all about the people at the end of the day. And you always want to make sure that you're working with people who, to the extent possible, share your values and are going to um, allow you to act in a way that's commensurate with your own uh, set of values and your own sense of purpose. And, you know, my observation would be, as a as a bureaucrat, I found those people sort of pretty much in equal proportions on both sides of politics. So I don't think it's a party political thing. And I actually think we've probably become too party political and too tribal. And that gets in the way of people actually solving problems in a less highly charged way. And when you made your move from from government uh, to, to corporate, you moved to, to Telstra into, I think, 2004, and you held a number of very senior roles there, Kate. Uh, what was the story behind yeah. that? What was um, Were you tapped on the shoulder? How did this all come about? I was tapped on the shoulder, although I probably won't go too deeply into that. And I, I guess I was tapped on the shoulder at a point in time where I was experiencing quite a lot of frustration in the sense that I felt like at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of reformist zeal or appetite for making major change. And that's what I most enjoyed doing. And also, I think just in career terms, I kind of done that and I wanted to try something different. And I think um, never have any regrets about that because I learned a whole lot of completely different skills. I often reflect to myself that if I went back to the public sector now, I'd do a lot better job knowing what I know <laughs> that I didn't know back then. And the move to Telstra, again, a large organisation in some parts um, slow and some parts very fast. As you say, it's down to the people. What did you inherit? Did it match your expectations? And what would you walk away saying with those your, your real key achievements? I will say one of the things that maybe helped me in the transition to Telstra is, yes, it's a corporate environment with different kind of bottom line drivers, etc. But it's also a very big, complicated organisation. So the skills that I learned in the public sector about how to get things done in a quite complex environment where there's a bunch of different stakeholders with vastly different, sometimes completely um, contradictory goals and aspirations, you actually have to learn how to traverse that to get things done. And I think that skill stood me in good stead when I got to Telstra. And people used to say to me, how did you get that done? I'd go, well, same way I used to get it done, actually, <laughs> just different topics. Okay, your success will be determined by the people you surround yourself with. And as you say, Absolutely. large, complex organisation how do you make the decisions on the, the people you're going to appoint? What are the key, I guess, criteria you're really looking for? I'm always looking for somebody who's optimistic. I don't like to be surrounded by pessimists because if you don't think you can make something happen, usually you don't. But if you think you can do it, it's amazing how often you do. I, I like people to be curious because I think wherever you're working now, the desire to learn and to expand your horizons and to learn new things, people who have that orientation naturally, 
especially in technology companies, tend to do well. Um, you want people who are going to be courageous. I've always tried to make sure that the people around me are happy to be frank and open and are not going to be, you know, people who just kowtow and agree with you. I mm-hmm. think it, it's really important to have courageous people who have a point of view and are willing to stand up for it and defend it. That'd probably be three of my key criteria. Kate, what was the um, the reason for, for leaving Telstra? My understanding is that you were actually approached for a, a non-exec director opportunity. That, that was my plan. I okay. had gotten to that point in my life where I thought that was it. I didn't want another executive role. You know, I was ready to go into something different, something more part-time, thinking a bit of mentoring and coaching because, you know, I really enjoy that. Maybe a couple of board directorships, some consulting perhaps especially consulting that might get me back into some of that public policy stuff that I loved so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, that was the plan, but it didn't quite pan out. So what was the story? You were approached for being an NED and they decided, what, based on uh, an opportunity and based on your background that uh, we should consider you for the chief exec role? Well, life's full of serendipity, right? So, I mean, I started the process of, you know, talking to them about um, an NED role and, you know, sort of halfway through the process, the then CEO decided that it was time for him to go and they started a search. And, you know, by then I'd gotten to know the chair and he said, well, would you be interested in the CEO role? And I think by then I was already going, is this kind of part-time life going to really suit me? Yeah. And I really liked the chair and I really liked the board and I thought it was a really interesting opportunity. So I decided I had one more exec role left in me. Well, congratulations on that, Kate. And can, maybe can you share for the audience um, a little bit more around what Chorus stands for, the values of Chorus, the culture, and actually what agenda you're driving towards? So, I mean, I think one of the things that's very appealing about Chorus is it is doing something great for New Zealand. So our vision is to keep New Zealand new and our purpose is to make New Zealand better. They're pretty motivating, um, motivating things. Our mission is to create an environment for our customers and for our people that optimises today's business and allows us to innovate for growth. And I guess if I was going to unpack that for you, there's an interesting history here in terms of telecommunications and how it evolved because in New Zealand, quite distinct and different to Australia, back in 2010, 2011, the old Telecom New Zealand made the decision to do a complete structural separation. Mm -hmm. And that was at a time when the government was running a tender process for for the country's fibre network. And Chorus got the copper network, exchanges and other infrastructure. And the government required the structural separation in order for Chorus to be able to tender to build the fibre network. And the rest of Telecom New Zealand, the mobile network, the retail business, etc., all... Um, moved to a different company that's now known as Spark. So both publicly listed companies, both completely separate from each other. And subsequent to that, Chorus tended for the work. And over time, there's been different tranches of that. But we're now in the happy place where by 2022, 87% of New Zealand will have fibre to the premise available to them. And the project's actually gone very, very well. It's ahead of time. The original aim was to have 20% take-up by uh, 2020, and it's 2019, and we've already gone past 51% take-up. The build is on time and on budget. It's given Chorus a real focus, and 
people here are really driven by that purpose of putting modern, important infrastructure in place that's going to allow the rest of the economy to grow and evolve and give everybody access to affordable, really, really high-quality broadband. So, Kate, where's the difference between New Zealand and us over here in Australia with, say, MBN? Well, I would say um, one thing. In New Zealand, they made the decision and they stuck with it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whenever you're building a large public infrastructure program like this, you want to be clear what your milestones are and what you're doing and you want that to be stable over a period of time. So once those decisions were made a decade on, we're basically still fulfilling those contracts. There hasn't been any chopping and changing about exactly what we're doing. So that's difference number one. It, It is very different to have two completely separate publicly listed companies, one running the fixed network and building it and the other retailing. And and in this model, Chorus is not allowed to retail. So we have no direct relationship with end customers. We're a wholesale-only provider. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that's how you get your competition because we treat everybody equally and anybody who likes can turn up and become an RSP and we just treat them all equally. Um, In Australia, I think NBN is a public um, institution and the separation has not been done in the same clear-cut way as it's been done here. And I think there's been quite a few changes of mind along the way which make it quite tricky. And look, what's the reception from the the average uh, New Zealander and the the opportunity that that, um, you guys are bringing to them? Oh, generally generally, um, New Zealanders think the whole program has been a big success and they love to think they're doing something better than Australia and they can probably with some justification say in this regard they have done it better. So they get exercised about that. But I don't want to paint too rosy a picture because there are still, as there are in any businesses, challenges with the model. Like communication's a little bit trickier because you've got us, you've got the service companies, you've got the RSPs and if you're the end customer, getting clear and accurate communications across those different people involved in the rollout is a challenge. Um, you know, we have, we have the same, we're, we're, we're spending billions of dollars building a new network, um, but people would like it to not be too expensive. So we have all those same challenges about how do you price it to make sure you get the right volume, that it's still affordable for people. So, you know, we still have our challenges, but basically I think the project is regarded as a rip-roaring success over here. And Kate, look, what sort of estimation would you predict um, the sense of scale up or growth to the economy when this is completed or, as you say, by 2022? What sort of opportunities to the, to the nation does it really bring? Uh, look, I think that there's been quite a few studies on that and mm. I would say IT services is the third biggest contributor to the economy after agriculture and tourism here. So you can't underestimate the right. importance of everybody having that underpinning infrastructure And I think there's every opportunity for those businesses to grow off the back of having such good quality infrastructure, becoming more and more important. Gamers and people like that who come here and say, wow, I can get a gig plan and it's unlimited and it's still affordable. That's pretty cool. Um, All of the schools have been connected up to the fibre network and that's really helped with digital environments for people to teach in. And we've done some work in recent times with a number of the schools to extend the footprint via Wi-Fi to the kids so that when they take their computers home, they can still work off the school network and get their homework done digitally, which is 
what they all do these days. So it's definitely supported and underpinned the IT and services industry, which is growing and is a big contributor to the economy. And I think, you know, there's a whole lot of other potential benefits for businesses who are getting into innovations of various sorts, whether that's gaming or video streaming, you know, the sky's the limit here because bandwidth constraints are not a problem at all. What about the um, cost restraints, Kate? And obviously there's a, a debate here in Australia. Is it expensive or what are we looking at? So the most common plan that probably 70% of customers are on now mm-hmm. is a 100 megabit unlimited plan. My price for that is $45. Right. Uh, and, okay. you know, various various RSPs will price whatever margin they want to and whatever packaging they want to put over the top of that. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, most people would say that's pretty affordable for a pretty good service. So the impact you talked about for the rest of the country, where is New Zealand at in the whole innovation uh, discussion, say AI, new digital uh, play off the back of this, Kate? Obviously, it's been embraced, but where do you see the next five years for the country? Uh, look, I would say in many respects... The interesting thing about New Zealand, I guess they've always, relatively small, especially compared to Australia, always had to figure out how to sort of do things um, with constrained resources Mm -hmm. and always, I think, very clear to sort of focus on the practical end of things. So, you know, plenty of companies over here digitising and thinking about things like the use of artificial intelligence, although, you know, there's probably some, some... challenges with some of that rollout. For the size of the country, quite a lot of innovation hubs, um, some attached to universities, some government-funded, some private ones. It's quite a vibrant sort of innovation community, I would say. I can't give you statistics off the top of my head about per capita, but definitely I would say people are up for using um, the infrastructure that they've got to think about new business models and new ideas and the things that they need to do. That, that heading around experimentation and openness to change uh, or willingness to change, is it much different to what you saw your experience in Australia versus what you're finding in New Zealand? I, I would say that there are some particular advantages in being smaller. Like it's actually easier to get a bunch of people in a room and make a decision and move on, whereas... Australia, partly because of its size and maybe partly for other reasons as well, it's more civil here. People are more polite. They're not quite so, um, you know, I mean, that's got a downside too. I think people here don't like conflict very much, but it is actually easier to get a group of people together, decide to do something and then move on. And, and that's true of the government as well to some extent because there's one house of parliament, there's no federation, there's local government and there's the federal government and that's it. So, again, I think on the big questions, that makes it slightly easier to get things done. I guess there's a real sense of purpose in what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. Um, New Zealanders are a very patriotic bunch and that includes everybody, whether they were born here or they came here or, you know, there, there is a real... And I think you saw that with Jacinda and her response to the Christchurch events a couple of weeks ago. There is a really deep-seated concern around the civil society and everybody feeling like they're part of the society. You know, it's reflected in the corporate environments too. We are very big here on diversity 
and on work-life balance and things like that. And people don't just say it, they actually do it. Well, do you want to talk us through, you know, when obviously you read the reports that we put out and the discussion here in Australia around um, the thoughts on diversity. You're a CEO, you're a leader, you've had a very impressive career. What is diversity to you? Oh, look, to me, I think there's a number of aspects to it. You know, I think we started out with diversity from a fairness lens. Mm. And then I think it's evolved into actually, if you want to be able to serve your customers well, then you have to understand them. And that means you want your own staff and your own environment to at least to some extent reflect the customers that they're serving so that you can understand them better. Then I think there's a bunch of productivity and efficiency type arguments that you want the maximum number of people participating in the economy for all sorts of productivity and efficiency reasons. So, you know, I I think there's any and all of those justifications and lots of points of view about when and how far you should push on those things. But to me, it shouldn't be something that's even up for debate. It should just be something that we manage. Now, obviously, as, as a CEO, you're there to inspire others to follow. How do you actually do that? And bearing in mind, you're from Australia leading the New Zealanders. Yeah, I, I cop lots of jokes about the All Blacks versus the Wallabies, so, you know. Oh, so do we. We get in hiding I, all day I long. To, yeah, yeah, I have, to, I have to cope with that. In terms of how you inspire people, like, I mean, I think um, I wouldn't say I'm kind of naturally a particularly inspirational person, but I do think in an environment like this, you have to be clear about the purpose that you have. You have to be clear about what you're trying to achieve. You have to listen. I really do believe that often you learn more from listening to the people who are working for you and your stakeholders than you do from anything else. And if you want to have a vision that's going to be shared, then you have to have listened somewhere along the way. Um, And, you know, I think you have to be the style of leader who's seen to be willing to do that and who actually does do it. That goes to how you choose to spend your time. And I think you can inspire people in lots of different ways. You know, I've seen inspirational leaders who are just brilliant communicators who sort of really pull at people's heartstrings. I would not put myself in that category. I would say I'm more at the sort of practical end of things. Um, But, you know, I think lots of different styles can work in different environments. How do you um, make the tough calls, Kate? Obviously, you've got to set the strategy and you've got to execute the strategy and not everybody's going to get there. Yep. How do, you, how do you make the tough calls under pressure? Look, I would honestly say sometimes making the tough calls is a gift because generally speaking, if people are not cutting it and it's not working out, generally that's because there's not a good fit anyway. So, you know, I think things that you call tough calls when it comes to people, my view is if it's not going to work out, then the sooner you figure that out, the better. And, you know, doing that in the most civilised way that you can and being open and honest with people often gives you a better result than not making the tough calls. So I guess you always want to try to be objective and understanding of the other person's point of view as well. But when it comes to human beings, either it's working or it's not, and the sooner you sort of get to the point of understanding that and make calls and let people manage in their own way, um, the better it is. So, Kay, when you when you arrived at... Um at Chorus, what did the board say to you? What, what, what does success look like to them and what does success look like to you? Uh, I, I, think, I think a many-faceted thing. I think the board is very conscious of the role that Chorus plays in a New Zealand context, so, you know, very concerned around doing the right thing. 
very concerned to make sure that the project's delivered on time and on budget, which is no mean feat and so far so good. But also I think they were looking for somebody who could, you know, we, we've got line of sight to the end of the build now. So they were looking for somebody who could figure out where to next for the organisation. And that's a lot of the work that I've been doing, increasing our product and marketing skills and abilities, mm -hmm. thinking about once the fibre is built, what else are people going to be doing with it and what's our role in, in, in some of those more future-looking things. Um, spent quite a bit of time on technology and, you know, what technology changes might impact on the company going forward. So, you know, yeah, as most boards do, they wanted the full package. And, Kate, keeping yourself abreast of not just the current um, issues, but thinking three, five years out, how do you do that? I read a lot. I maintain my networks of people who um, are regularly engaged in technology and technology environments. I make the effort to, to travel overseas at least a couple of times a year to go and see things that I might not be able to see here. And I will say I did that in Australia as well because I think these things are evolving so quickly. You do need to actually go and see people and maintain some networks to understand what's going on out there. And I think particularly in a technology landscape, being able to distinguish the real from the not so real is pretty important because there's lots of hype in our industry and yeah. the technology can get quite complex. So making sure you ask the right questions and don't get sort of entranced by a nice PowerPoint that may or may not have anything behind it. I think being interested is really important, right? You know, I find all this stuff fascinating, so I'm happy to spend my time reading and talking to people and visiting people and understanding more about it. So I think, you know, having that orientation is pretty important if you're going to if you're going to work in this type of industry. Is there any particular nations which are surprising you? Is it the um, Israelis which are leading the way in technology? Is it the Americans or is it Eastern Europeans? Is there any trends we should be aware of? Look, I think it's interesting. Everybody comes at these things in different ways, it's hard not to admire the Israelis for their innovation system. And what I would say is a standout for me is not just the number of innovative companies that they produce for what's still a relatively small country, mm. but it's the unity of purpose that they display across the private sector, government and academia in supporting the plan for the country around innovation and entrepreneurship. I've also had people say to me that part of that is about the risk-taking culture, that because people in Israel have grown up in the environment that they've grown up in and they all have to do military service and run the risk of being shot occasionally, that that actually makes them better risk-takers and that's why they're better entrepreneurs than some others. We're certainly seeing some interesting, interesting developments in sort of, you know, US versus China yeah. in technology. Yeah. I think sheer weight of numbers, you've got to say um, some of those Chinese companies are doing some pretty interesting things. But yeah, I think, you know, there's always something different to learn from different environments. You know, I think a lot of the Asian countries like Korea and Japan have been leading in technology for a long time. I mean, Korea's had fiber to the home for quite some years now. So they're probably the first in the world to go down that path. And Others in Europe are starting to play catch-up, but probably a fair way behind. And what about the flip side to all this, Kate? You've also then got um, the nemesis, which is cyber, cybercrime. Um, what, yeah. what, what are you seeing there? Well, I, I mean, I think the internet was sort of, you know, the free and easy wild net when it was first set up. And the whole raison d'etre was 
the free exchange of information and anybody being able to do anything that they liked. And, and I think the reality is that when it became such a global phenomenon, that was never going to be sustainable. And so what we're seeing now is rules needing to be applied and a bit of regulation being required to just restrain some of those excessive. So cybersecurity definitely on the rise. Very topical here in New Zealand, the live streaming of yes. the Christchurch um, disaster. I think all of those things are just leading people to say, well, you're actually a content provider now, so you should have responsibilities like other content providers. And if you're a cyber criminal, you're still a criminal and we should have ways of catching you. And we need to sort of stay on top of what technology is allowing you know, some of those cyber criminals to do and be in a position to be able to act on it. And I think that's all absolutely critical for the integrity of the internet to be maintained over the next decade or so. Do you think it's going to be in the top of the mind, Kate, or is it going to be lost in the next uh, 12 months? Oh, no, it's it's not going to go away. So I, I don't think there's a board or a senior management team anywhere in either country that doesn't have this on their agenda. Kate, the shock of it all... Isn't it absolutely surprised because it happened in New Zealand? Or is it, are we just ex- to expect that type of activity, whether it's a, a hit at me through my computer or it's a, or coming from a bullet? Um, the world's certainly changing, but it's, it's access to, as you say, cyber and technology changing the game. How do we protect ourselves? Or should, we, or should we just put in the back of our mind, it's just going to be there and just be prepared for it? I definitely don't think you can do that. Um, how you prepare for it, I don't know, that's a really tough call. Like, I would definitely say here mm. it has absolutely shocked the nation because New Zealand has thought of itself, quite rightly, as a safe haven, a bit far removed from things going on in other countries, never regarded itself as a target, always regarded itself as a sort of tolerant society. So I think the shockwaves that that could happen here, they really are shockwaves. People were just... I mean, you're always going to be shocked because no one expects that something like that to happen anywhere. But for it to have happened here, people just were completely shocked. No one saw it coming. No one ever thought that we were at risk. Probably in Australia, we're, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been an equal shock, but you know, we've been more accustomed to being targeted or to having sort of incidents of that sort, but here, not at all. And look, I think, as you said earlier, the uh, the reaction by the New Zealanders has been absolutely outstanding. And I think every country in the world has just stood up and clapped and how they've um, presented themselves and what they've done. Well, I must say, you do feel proud to be part of a response that has just been so full of compassion and kindness and caring in my own organisation, people just looking out for each other. It, it is actually tangible and you can feel it and and it's lovely to see the whole country rallying behind the Muslim community and reaching out to do what they can to support and it, you know it didn't have to be that way so I think um, a great credit to the Prime Minister who's done a brilliant job I think. Fully, fully agree. Kate taking, uh, taking a different tack you're obviously incredibly busy. Um, how do you prevent yourself from burning out? Um, it is actually a really good question because I think anybody who does these sorts of roles, you do tend to be on the obsessive side of things. So, and and I have always worked pretty hard. Um, I do remember getting this advice some time ago, and it's something that's always stuck with me: is that you have to remember it's a marathon and not a sprint. I think that means from time to time you do have to take a bit of time out. You've got to make sure that you do take regular holidays. 
you pace yourself a little bit and, you know, there, there always will be in these sorts of roles times where you are really under the pump. So when you get through a period like that, I think taking stock. And look, you know, I would say the other thing is make sure you've got a fantastic team because it takes a lot of pressure off if you've got a great team around you. What about the other part, Kate, when you do take that time out? When do you actually take the time to seriously think? I, I do try to make sure that I schedule in time for thinking. So just little things like I will take a day off-site and get a bunch of people to help me think, um, come up with some structure. Often that'll be around what should I be focusing on for the next six or 12 months. I do try to make sure that I program that in. Ha- having had roles historically where the operational day-to-day reality was so overwhelming, um, it really taught me the importance of taking time out to think about things generally and to think about what's going to happen next and to not get too bogged down in the day-to-day. One thing I did notice, Kate, you've had a number of board roles during your exec career. Maybe for the benefit yep. of all of us, um, can you share it? Has it added to you? Has it helped you see things differently from a from exec's point of view? Definitely. I have always been a defender of execs having at least one external role. And I think for a number of reasons. Number one, it's easy to get quite myopic when you're doing a job and it's sort of, you know, it's your life and it's what you live, eat and breathe. Yeah. It's really important to have a perspective from the outside that is completely different. And I find that doing an external board does that. Mostly they couldn't care less about your issues you're obsessing about in your day-to-day reality. Um, I think also doing something that's sort of different, that's going to expand your skill set and give you a different perspective that you wouldn't get in your day job is really helpful as well. Um, I think it's getting tougher these days, and I know a lot of the shareholders groups are not that keen anymore Mm. on execs having external board roles. And I think you do have to be careful because you have to think about risk and reputation and all of those things as well. But I actually think on a personal level, as long as you can manage the time, um, it's actually a really good thing to have another role that has a completely different outside perspective that, you know, stops you from getting too bogged down in your day-to-day reality and your day job. I actually think it's quite interesting, especially as we're seeing a few more people go into non-executive director roles at younger ages, that, you know, it'd be good to see people go backwards and forwards from exec roles to board roles, I think. Well, I thought you made an earlier dis- discussion about purpose, or I would say the Israelis, where you said... Um execs and education come together and there's a clear focus. Um, Big issue I'm talking from Australia's point of view is the the relationship between business and education. It could be far better, one would argue. And secondly, now we talk about diversity uh, in the boardrooms. As you just outlined there, there's a number of chief execs or a number of execs um, who you think would have, if they had the availability to have at least one board role, the boards could only benefit uh, as a result. So I'm in full belief with you, Kate, and there's a lot more to be discussed. And I think it's sad that uh, the pressure is being so pushed against young executives saying, we're frowning upon you to take on that board role. Yeah, because I think, you know, it's not just the hours you spend in the office. It's, as you say, it's the way you choose to spend your time and spending a proportion of it thinking and spending a proportion of it getting a different perspective from a different kind of angle and a different industry all has to help. I mean... Problem solving today is getting more complicated and more and more people are talking about multidisciplinary approaches and agile approaches and these sorts of things that are all aimed at bringing a a range of different perspectives to bear in terms of the way you're going to solve a problem or make a decision. Well, you actually have to have the wherewithal to be able to manage that. And I think 
you know, a bit of exposure to a broader set of environments is, is becoming increasingly important in order to be able to do that. And do you have any thoughts on, because Agile is a is obviously digitization and Agile are going hand-in-hand in, hand in discussions in most boardrooms and at the exact level. What are your thoughts? Is it is it actually been discussed properly or is it more buzzwords? Um, look, I think there are examples of people doing a really good job of it, but you know, I would say Agile is primarily a methodology, so you better be clear about what version of it you're using and you better be clear about, you know, the cultural context in which you're doing that and what problems you're trying to solve. I am personally a believer in bringing to bear more of a multidisciplinary approach because I think, you know, I think of historically some of the competitions that we ran in the technology space back at Telstra, mm-hmm. almost every year the teams that won had a mixture of commerce, engineering, art, psychology, philosophy, you know. Um, I am a big believer in bringing teams together and being able to sort of bring different perspectives to bear. It doesn't work for everything and it still depends on the quality of the thinking and the quality of the people who participate in the exercises. But I do think it makes you spend more time in the planning and more more time in the defining of the objective you're trying to achieve, and that's a good thing. Generally, I think you're going to end up moving faster because you've been clearer up front about what you're trying to do. So how would you describe your leadership style, Kate? Okay? Well, my answer to that is you should go and ask the people who work for me. <laughs> um, uh, but I guess, you know, I would say I regard myself as having more of a coaching style. I'm not particularly fond of hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like to have teams around me who are happy to debate things because that's the way I process information. I'm not really one for sitting at a computer screen. I like to talk things through. Um, that was an interesting challenge for me when I first got here because they were used to much more of a command and control style. And I'd be going, oh, what do you think about this? And somebody would say, oh, I went and did it. And I'd go, no, 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 no. I didn't mean for you to go and do it. I was just exploring the idea. So I actually had to put a bit of effort into trying to get people to understand the difference between when I was telling them to do something and when I was just exploring an idea. But we've gotten through all of that now, and that seems to work. So I guess off the back of that, you know, comes my comment earlier about teams. I, I really am happiest when we're a well-performing team. And to me, that's really important. You know, you're a custodian in these roles for quite a short period of time. You definitely want to leave things better than you found them. And it is absolutely all about the people, even in a technology-driven world. So building and growing teams is a really important part of leadership for me. And during your career, have you um, had the opportunity to be mentored or do you mentor, Kate? I do mentor. Um Sporadically, I've got a really interesting mentoring relationship at the moment, which I won't talk too much about. Um, I've been formally mentored once, but probably informally mentored quite a few times. And I think my learning from that is you can get sort of new learnings from all over the place. doesn't necessarily have to be, um, you know, bigger or more important people than you. Sometimes you can learn more from junior staff or younger people who have a different perspective. but I also think the very structured piece of, I don't know if it was mentoring or coaching, it was probably more like coaching, I did find very valuable because I think you can try to be as self-reflective as you like, but it's only when somebody else explains to you the leadership shadow that you're leaving and how people respond to your style that you really get a sense for the impact that you're having. I think it's hard to be self-reflective without someone else 
helping you to understand that. Kate, um, what's in store next? Well, I would like to finish my job here and then I'm definitely done. I don't think I'm up for any more exec roles. I would like to finish what I've started here and then I think, yeah, something a bit more part-time, probably go back to the original plan, you know, maybe a bit of non-executive director, a couple of those. Um, I definitely would like to get a bit more into the coaching and the mentoring. I do think I've had a fortunate life. I've been exposed to lots of different environments and it's and it's really good fun to be able to share some of that with people who might benefit from it. So I'd definitely like to do a bit of that. And um, otherwise, who knows? I'll see what happens next. Spend a bit more time with the family. Travel a bit more. Maybe smell the roses a bit more. Sounds like a good plan, Kate. But if you were to, I guess, look back at the young Kate today, what advice would you give her? I would say... You should have been more confident sooner and you should have taken more risks sooner. Why didn't you, Kate? Um, I think like most young women, uh, confidence was a big issue for me. I just thought everybody else was better than me and, you know, I couldn't possibly be as smart as these other people and, you know, that really held me back. Lucky I married a guy who, you know, is completely the opposite and has taught me that it's possible to be confident so, no. But Kate, do you still see that as a, a major concern? Not for me personally, but absolutely, definitely. I see it so often in the young women that I mentor that I just go, there has to be something deep-seated and cultural about it. We run a Pacifica leadership program over here, and one of the young women who was on that program told me this amazing story about, you know, she had never, ever considered herself as being skilled enough to go for a leadership position. And she's absolutely a natural leader. We run a program here at Chorus called the UP program. Mm -hmm. And it is for emerging female leaders. And the thing that they value more than anything else is the public speaking training and the training on sort of how to have presence in communications. And so many of them just go, the thought of doing that terrifies me and that holds me back from going for senior positions. And to watch them blossom when they just have a bit of skill and a bit of experience and get exposed to it more and figure out it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be, you suddenly see them take off. And so much of that is about confidence. Kate, I think you just summed it up so so eloquently. Thanks for sharing some very personal insights and sharing your career with us. And um, we've all read your career and stood back in amazement. Congratulations, Kate. Thanks very much. You've been listening to No Limitations. <laughs>